Hello and welcome to Reddit Readings in episode 73. In this episode we are covering the posts on r slash history. Due to popular demand we are bringing back our new and improved text to speech. So moving forward, every other episode you will be hearing my voice. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. User Crimson underscore Marksman asked, Why weren't grenades invented a lot earlier? Gunpowder was invented in China sometime during the first millennium AD. The earliest possible reference to gunpowder appeared in 142 AD during the Eastern Han Dynasty when the alchemist Wei Boyang, also known as the father of alchemy, wrote about a substance with gunpowder-like properties. He described a mixture of three powders that would fly and dance violently in his Cantong Qi, otherwise known as the Book of the Kinship of Three, a Taoist text on the subject of alchemy. Although he did not name the powders, they were almost certainly the ingredients of gunpowder, and no other explosive known to scientists is composed of three powders. At this time, saltpeter was produced in Hanzong, but would shift to Gansu and Sichuan later on. Wei Boyang is considered to be a semi-legendary figure meant to represent a collective unity, and the Cantong Qi was probably written in stages from the Han Dynasty to 450 AD. While it was almost certainly not their intention to create a weapon of war, Taoist alchemists continued to play a major role in gunpowder development due to their experiments with sulfur and saltpeter involved in searching for eternal life and ways to transmute one material into another. Historian Peter Lorge notes that despite the early association of gunpowder with Taoism, this may be a quirk of historiography and a result of the better preservation of texts associated with Taoism, rather than being a subject limited to only Taoists. The Taoist quest for the elixir of life attracted many powerful patrons, one of whom was Emperor Wu of Han. One of the resulting alchemical experiments involved heating 10% sulfur and 75% saltpeter to transform them. The next reference to gunpowder occurred in the year 300 during the Jin Dynasty, 266-420-11. A Taoist philosopher by the name of Zhe Hong wrote down the ingredients of gunpowder in his surviving works, collectively known as the Baopuzi the master who embraces simplicity. The inner chapters, Nepian, on Taoism contains records of his experiments to create gold with heated saltpeter, pine resin, and charcoal among other carbon materials, resulting in a purple powder and arsenic vapors. In 492, Taoist alchemists noted that saltpeter, one of the most important ingredients in gunpowder, burns with a purple flame, allowing for practical efforts at purifying the substance. During the Tang Dynasty, Alchemists used saltpeter in processing the four yellow drugs, sulfur, realgar, orpiment, arsenic trisulfide. The Mongols and their rise in world history as well as conflicts with both the Jin and Song played a key role in the evolution of gunpowder technology. 64. Mongol aptitude in incorporating foreign experts extended to the Chinese, who provided artisans that followed Mongol armies willingly and unwillingly far into the west and even east, to Japan. 
Unfortunately, textual evidence for this is scant as the Mongols left few documents. This lack of primary source documents has caused some historians and scholars such as Kate Raphael to doubt the Mongols' role in disseminating gunpowder throughout Eurasia. On the opposite side stand historians such as Tonio Andrade and Stephen Haw, who believe that the Mongol Empire not only used gunpowder weapons but deserves the moniker, the first gunpowder empire. So how hard was it for people to just put a pin on the things? User Revealed SA commented this to the question. The earliest grenades do come from China. Rather than using pins, most early grenades used fuses and were shaped like spheres. Basically, what cartoon bombs look like. This spherical nature is also where they get their name. Early hand-thrown bombs looked like pomegranates, for which the French word is grenade. The use of grenades is also why many of the most prestigious units in European armies are called grenadier. These devices with unreliable fuses were highly dangerous and soldiers who used them had to be both very strong, long-limbed, and precise throwers to have a decent chance of using them safely, so grenadier tended to be the biggest, strongest, and fittest soldiers on the battlefield, making the role a mark of prestige. When the need for specialists in throwing grenades faded away, these units retained that prestige, and even today with units like the Grenadier Guards of the UK. This 111 further added to this question. The interesting thing here is how the scientific method changed technological development. One lord in Asia gets his smartest advisors to create a grenade out of gunpowder. Because he needs it for some conflict or other. They test a bunch of different methods, settle on something that works for them, and you have the formula for a somewhat functional, very dangerous grenade. But they don't share that with anyone. Why would they? It's a secret, and it's likely to die with them. So now the next lord that thinks of using gunpowder starts all over again. At no point does someone go, you know we've used grenades a lot, boy it would sure be better if they were safer in some way, they tend to blow up in people's hands. Maybe somebody really smart can figure out a way to make them better? That culture doesn't exist yet, it was a product of the Enlightenment. User Upper Onion 642 asked the next question regarding slaves in ancient Rome buying their freedom. I am a big fan of ancient Rome, but one thing I can't grasp is how slaves could purchase their own freedom. I know gladiators could make some money and I guess some slaves could do that too, but were they regularly paid for their services? Did not the owner also own all of their possessions including coin? If so, do not the owner get paid by their own money? Were there laws permitting the slaves to get paid? Bonus question. Of a man sold himself into slavery like people did to become gladiators, was this for a limited time? Did they have privileges other slaves did not have or were they treated the same? User Luke Ben answered the question with this comment. All of a slave's possessions technically belonged to their owner, but it was the usual custom to allow slaves to have their own property, known as a peculium. Enslavers could confiscate a peculium arbitrarily, but it was customary to allow it to move with the slave, even if the slave was sold. Depending on the work a slave did, they might have lots of opportunities to add to their peculium. Slaves who managed business enterprises or were hired out for cash like doctors and actresses would be particularly capable of accumulating their own money. It's still somewhat of an open question why Romans manumitted slaves so often, and what that tells us about slavery's role in the Roman economy. Certainly there doesn't seem to be a direct economic benefit from the perspective of an enslaver to letting slaves accumulate their own money then paying them out of money they could have arbitrarily confiscated. 
it was probably a way of incentivizing slaves, so they cared about working independently at roles that weren't directly supervised by an enslaver. In any case, purchasing freedom directly was definitely a thing that happened, but was not the most common way for a slave to get their freedom. It would be more common for a Roman slave to be manumitted in a will, or to simply be informally manumitted over dinner. Romans selling themselves into slavery was made illegal fairly early in Roman history. A free man choosing to become a gladiator does have a lot in common with them selling themselves into slavery, as a gladiator was an infames, a sort of untouchable class that also included actors and prostitutes. There was little practical distinction between an enslaved and freeborn gladiator. The freeborn gladiator would swear an oath to obey their lanista, handler, as if they were a slave. It was of interest to Roman sports fans that a freeborn gladiator had chosen the arena, and gladiator fight results will sometimes note next to a gladiator's name that they were freeborn. Gladiators who survived the arena for a few years could expect to go free eventually. They often took work training new gladiators at that point. Something like 20% of gladiatorial fights ended with the death of the loser, circa the early empire, for unclear reasons the death rate went up over time. But those deaths would have been heavily weighted towards new fighters, who had less experience and did not have established fan bases that would cheer for them to be spared, so there would have been plenty of gladiators who made it through their career and out the other side. User El Mano Anano further added, I don't know a lot about this, but in regards to the slave owner's benefit, it expanded his client base. As his former slave goes out and succeeds, that slave is reliant on his former owner for political cover but can also be depended on for support in things like their former owner's own political ambition. If he frees a slave who is an excellent cobbler, he can get shoes made to outfit his troop of soldiers and their children. Carpenters can contribute to boats, or houses. If you're throwing a feast or games, your clients can contribute whatever, food from their restaurant stalls or produce or decorations or stagecraft or whatever. The more successful your feast, games, the more popular you become and the higher office you can hold. And since all of Rome's politics were reliant on these client relationships the broader you expanded your base the more power you would have, and the more power you had the more you could do for your base. If you were successful, that would translate down to your former slave, who then might get their own slave to expand their business, once again increasing your power and so on. There's probably a better source for this but Annalee Newitz talks about it in the Pompeii section of her book Four Lost Cities. User Lukeben replied to the comment with this. I agree this is part of the equation. To keep going deeper, I suspect the ability to retain a freedman as a client lowered the cost of manumitting a slave rather than actively being the main incentive to manumit a slave. In theory you could just have an enslaved cobbler to outfit everyone without bothering to manumit him, and if you wanted that business to expand you could encourage the cobbler to purchase underslaves as part of his peculium. One other reason I've seen suggested that you might actively want that expanding business in your orbit to be run by a client rather than a slave is that an enslaver was held legally responsible for their slave's actions, but a patron was not legally responsibly for their client. A Roman who owned lots of different slave-operated businesses could get in trouble if they weren't able to supervise them all and the cobbler started cheating customers. It could be legally safer to run a large patronage network than a network of slave-operated businesses that you personally owned. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On to the next topic, where this Redditor had a very interesting question about the American identity. As a non-American, who didn't really study its history, I am immensely confused as to where the identity of the American came. From what I know, aside from the indigenous Native Americans, the ones who rebelled, and thereby declared independence, were themselves European, or more specifically British what lead to the population adopting the American name and separating themselves from the other British settlers they were also a part of. It is something that sort of baffles me, as they adapted English as the language, and Christianity as the religion, although it is curious that Americans were, to my knowledge, not Protestant, unless Britain itself at the time of colonizing were not Protestant themselves. To which user G. McGath answered. The idea of an American national identity got a large boost, ironically, from Southern secession. After the American Revolution, people thought of themselves primarily as belonging to a state. The Declaration of Independence talks about independent states, not an independent nation. The Civil War brought a greater stress on preserving the nation. See Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, for example. The federal government flexed its muscles in an unprecedented way to keep the South from returning to de facto slavery. American patriotism is almost entirely a product of the Civil War era and later. User O no Tokyo added to this topic by commenting, earlier than you might think. Many colonists, particularly in New England, were already separatists from the Church of England, which meant that their ties to the mother country were already weaker. In some colonies like New York, Many of the colonists were Dutch and Georgia was one of the first colonies where you would be transported for crimes committed. The more famous example of this later on was Australia, a dumping ground for undesirables. However, realistically, the idea of being a colony being ruled by a king and representative assembly which is across an ocean that it took weeks, and even sometimes months to communicate with is generally what caused the divide. By late 18th century, the colonies that made up the 13 original states were fairly well developed economically and had their own concerns. The British government, while protecting the colonies during the French and Indian War, expected the colonies to follow their lead even if that lead was more taxes on them and the inability to spread out into new territories. Strictly speaking, the British government made decisions that made sense to them. They needed the extra tax money to make up for the costs of protection and they did not want to stoke more problems with the native tribes, so that they instituted the Proclamation Line of 1763, which technically made it illegal for colonists to move and settle deeper into the continent. The American colonists obviously did not want to be forced to stay behind the line and certainly did not want to be taxed more. Although more taxation was probably fair, it did not at all help that the colonists had no representation in Parliament and so any laws made in regard to taxation as well as trade, would always benefit the mother country over the colonies. In this sense, their heritage made the divide much more likely. The descendants of the English settlers were very well acquainted with representative government from the mother country. They expected representation, and it is clear from even the history of England what happens when the government tries to avoid representation being permitted. Revolt.
User buzzing leader 51 started the next topic by asking the question. So Germany had to pay $33 billion for World War I, and they only managed to pay that off by 2010. Did the valuation go up over the course of the century? User Flylyseplik answered the question by commenting. So Germany was initially to pay some 132 billion marks. That number was essentially fictional, and they did end up paying some 8 billion marks in the interim period which were largely contributions towards things like occupation costs, which technically speaking were not reparations. Those costs were to be paid first and any remainder was then to be applied to the reparations bill. The Ruhr occupation proved to be modestly profitable, producing some 900 million gold marks in profit, albeit split four ways between IIRC, France, Belgium, Italy, and the US. The costs of occupation up to 1921 were calculated as 3.1 billion marks in food and raw materials essential to Germany as supplies for that same period cost another 4 billion marks. The UK in particular was semi-interested in more reparations once they included things like pensions for war widows. But this was never a practical issue, as it was only a theoretical increase in the British share of the pie, and not an enlargement of the pie. The UK didn't receive more money as a result, and largely felt the financial reparations would hold back Germany and prevent the UK from economic recovery into the bargain. One of the ongoing problems was Germany paying in kind, coal, timber, steel, dyes, etc. While cash payments were rare, payments in kind were more reliable, but were still technically defaults as Germany refused to supply the amounts it had agreed. 1920-1922 for instance, Germany fell short by some 15 million tons of coal, while it was simultaneously exporting coal to Austria and Switzerland. This is especially indicative of bad faith for several reasons. Payments in kind were based upon, and revised downwards from, German offers. The shipments were arranged by Germany at a fixed price in paper marks, which Germany had intentionally devalued, allowing them to fund such deliveries at impossibly low prices, and shipments continued to fall short even as Germany received further funding in terms of loans and bounties for development of industries and deliveries respectively. In 1920, France received only 20% of the timber due, and in 1921 this mildly increased to 29%. The UK in particular, if only due to geography, was at the back of the queue in terms of physical goods, and received only 0.2% of its allocation of timber in 1922. In 1921, Germany did actually pay 1 billion marks in full, largely because there were troops occupying custom posts in western Germany, but after that paid 13 million marks in late 1921 and 435 million in 1922. During this time inflation spiraled largely thanks to enormous amounts of paper marks being printed. The Germans blamed reparations for this at the same time as they barely paid anything, proving inflation and reparations payments were in fact entirely decoupled, and inflation was a very handy ploy to pay back war debt, domestic debt, and state enterprise costs, as well as dodge reform and reparations. The Dawes Plan of 1924 did in fact take into account money Germany had paid previously leading to a reduction in the total reparations to be paid, and while Germany had to pay 1 billion marks per year, Germany also received at least 7.5 billion marks in loans between 1924 and 1930. These loans, largely the work of J.P. Morgan, and to be paid back over 25 years, allowed Morgan to apply pressure and ensure the loans were safe, making sure that Germany was never in a position where it felt it could not repay them. By this point, 
Virtually everyone involved acknowledged Germany was not making these payments out of her own resources. Germany did actually pay the increasing amounts stipulated until 1928, when they were looking at paying 2.5 billion marks per year, which necessitated the Young Plan. The Young Plan in 1929 reconfigured the payments again, but it basically came down to an unavoidable minimum of 660 million marks per year, 85% of which was to go to France. For the first 10 years, the maximum per year was below 2 billion marks, and Germany confidently expected further reductions or for reparations to end within that period. Even though the Young Plan stipulated a maximum of 59 years, depending upon payments made. This proved to be hopeless, as following a certain German election in 1930, Germany suffered enough capital flight to push it from recession to depression, and sought reparations relief. President Herbert Hoover proposed a moratorium on all intergovernmental debt in 1931, and while the Lausanne Conference proposed a final payment of 3 billion marks, this was never ratified and further discussions with Hitler were a non-starter. World War II obviously put paid to any further payments, and they did not resume until West Germany agreed to restart them in 1953, IIRC. They were set at a fairly low level in order to avoid any economic difficulty. User Sour Cream Spoon Art asked these two questions regarding armies in ancient times. The first question. In ancient times how did two marching armies know where to find each other? User Meatball Dom answered with. The majority of times someone was coming directly to you. In the event that you were planning to meet somewhere in the middle, there weren't typically that many routes one could take. There are examples of invading armies trying to take trickier routes to catch the target off guard. Marathon being one of the more famous ones. Bet generally you stuck to what you knew and knew you could support. You very well could have people who have fought for the other side fighting with you now too, so they might be intimately familiar with the best routes. If they did want to meet somewhere in the middle, usually they were scouting for each other. Send out people well in advance of you who could then communicate back to you what was going on. This could tell you the numbers, their direction, what they were doing and allow you to adjust on the fly. The second question reads as follows. And at that point why not just go around them and take their city? To which user Meatball Dom answered with. It would be a very risky move. Let's assume the target has basic fortifications, enough that you'd be expecting some resistance, and some level of siege. So their defensive army has just marched out. You've tricked them into thinking you're on the other side completely and now you're marching right at their city. Remember those scouts? The city will have them too. And they'll almost certainly have soldiers there as well perhaps even of equal size to the one that's been sent out. Now this might give you the chance to take them on one at a time instead of at the same time and might be beneficial. But what happens if those scouts reach the other army in time and now they've marched back and you're trapped between their city walls with the first army now pressing against you and the army that stayed put, or just anyone in the city ready to fight, also letting you have it. You're trapped and it doesn't look good. Look at Julius Caesar's actions at the Battle of Alesia. He had Vercingetorix inside Alesia with his army, and wanted to take the city and Alesia. But he was aware that he was vulnerable to any other reinforcements coming from behind him. So he built a wall around Alesia, and then built a wall around his troops, so he could both defend against any attacks from Alesia and defend against any attacks from outside of it. And this almost went bad for him too. They found a gap in the walls. So it's important to keep in mind that real-life battles aren't certain. 
it's not a board or card game where throwing down a certain strategy automatically means X, or automatically does Y, or invalidates any attempts. No matter how puny they may be. Things are always changing, and what worked once may be a complete disaster the next time under nearly equal conditions. That's it for today's episode of Reddit Readings. If you enjoy these episodes please consider subscribing and turning on notifications, so you don't miss any episodes. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.